0: to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Noble Hierarch, Charming Prince, Muxus Goblin Grandee, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy
1: and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live, Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thuribon University, and TheEpicStorm.com.
0: Welcome to episode 28 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. We've dubbed this one Missed Shots. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Brian Coble and Bryant Cook. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good, Phil. Hanging in there. How are you? You know, uh, awaiting the start of school, whatever that's going to look like. Uh, Lots of uncertainty, but the day-to-day stuff is going well.
2: Yep, having two-thirds of our hosts being teachers is kind of a high-anxiety time for this this podcast
1: yeah i can't believe phil uh not being a teacher some people
2: <laughs> yeah teaching people how to play the epic storm doesn't count you don't have to go anywhere to do that though you do a good job at it you've certainly built quite a curriculum
1: thank you those were some uh, interesting words <laughs> but uh <laughs> they're all true I'm doing great too guys but listen I,
2: I have a master's degree in curriculum and instruction and the epicstorm.com is a pretty functional curriculum to bring someone from i don't know how to do this to i do this pretty good
1: so would you say that it's like a university i wouldn't uh, go that
0: far let's let's no. not get carried
2: away no it's just a website
1: okay no
2: open enrollment at this time. yeah it's like trump university it's the Trump University uh, of Magic Content. The epicstar.com <laughs> is the Trump University of Magic Content.
1: It is not Clown College. Just uh, to reiterate that for everyone. Clown
2: College is actually a legit thing though. Like clowns have to know how to do things and there's like different kinds of clowns. And th- I don't know why I know any of this, but apparently if you want to be a clown, you have to like interview and they size up like your to- your tone of voice, like the pitch of your voice, the size of your physical body. And then there's like types of clowns you're allowed to be. Like you can't be like 6'5 and be one of like the silly clowns because that's terrifying. Like you have to be like a sad clown or something, which has its own comedic value. But like it's less scary (laughs) because you're not jumping around being crazy. Like this is a real thing. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but this is all real. And it's far more intense than Trump University.
1: I love the idea of just like a 6'5 massive man that really, really wants to be a silly small clown. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like, sir, you won't
2: fit in the car. <laughs> it's not funny if only one of us gets out.
0: I didn't know clowns had, like, D&D-style subclasses. I'd learned something They absolutely today. do. Yes, yes.
2: It, it's a fascinating culture that uh, America, like, present-day America kind of shits on, because the, the whole, like, cultural meme of clowns are scary, why would kids ever like this, uh, has just been in place most of my whole life, pretty much. Like, Bozo was already going off the air when I became uh, a child. So they've not been cool. A true
1: fact. Uh, I didn't grow up very wealthy, uh, not to get too serious or anything for a second, but like my parents uh, spent a bunch of the rent money when I was like turning six or seven years old and hired a clown. And my mom was like, he's going to love it. We can miss rent for one month, whatever. And they were just so disappointed that I was like, I think the guy's weird. I just like, wasn't into it. And I was like, when is he leaving? <laughs> it's like, he's <laughs> leaving at the end of the month. We paid rent. <laughs> He lives here now.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that speaking of missed shots like that, that's your parents missed shot for this episode. Like, I definitely have had a number of times uh, in my life, like I also didn't grow up wealthy. And once in a while, you would see that, like, my parents really put some time and thought and uh, financial effort into making something happening. And my brother and I were just like, what is this? I
1: hate it. Uh, so, th- I have a missed shot that- of mine for my parents. This We're going way off topic already. No, we're, we're, we're on topic. Uh, <laughs> it's missed shots. In, like, fourth grade, I decided I really wanted to play the trombone. My parents went out and bought a trombone for me. It was, like, two and a half grand. I did it for a month and a half, and then one of my teachers yelled at me about missing a class. And I was just like, they're a jerk. I'm not going back after they spent, like, $2,500 on this trombone.
2: So... Funny story, I still play the trombone and uh, not like actively, but I still own a pretty nice trombone and I was in like a jazz band through college and stuff. It was only as an adult that I stopped playing it. But uh, yeah, uh, my first trombone was like $800. It was like a banger and I I just like banged through that until high school where I upgraded to a really nice one. My parents figured like, ah, he's like nine years in, I guess we can get him a nice one now. And I still have it. So, uh, so do your parents still have your trombone or was it just sold immediately?
1: Like I said, we didn't grow up very wealthy. Uh, so it was sold at like the first garage sale they had once I decided that I like, was done. One of the, like, the things that makes me the angriest about my childhood is I came home once from school. We had like a half day and we had a garage sale. And all of my Super Nintendo games were out in the front yard. And like my mom was like, but you haven't played it in three weeks.
2: I'll kill you, mom. <laughs> oh my god i i'm surprised that it went at a garage sale like a twenty five hundred dollar instrument like that there's like a magic card-esque market for that like they could have gotten you know fifteen hundred out of it back at like a a used instrument store
1: i'm pretty sure they sold it for like seven hundred dollars all
2: right rough beats
1: but uh let's get a little bit more back into the episode (laughs)
2: Wait, we have an episode to record. I thought we were just talking about trombones. Do you know that the
1: trombone,
2: the trombone was originally called the sackbut. Oh. That's my a God. true story. S-A-C-B-U-T, sackbut. That was the original name of that instrument. And uh, it was renamed trombone because of its shape. And if you know anyone who speaks French, the word trombone means paperclip. Because it is shaped the same as a trombone. Those are all true statements. Carry on with the episode. This is, like, more interesting
0: than the magic shit we recorded. I know.
2: Uh, we're just going to talk about, like, shit in our brains, and there will be no magic content. You should sign off now if that's what you came here for. I'm
0: sorry.
1: <laughs> All right, Brian, quick hit section. All right, go. so donations. Unfortunately, we did not get any, and I'm here to be the villain. We received the most positive feedback on the last episode on how to beat Rugged We all three of us had moto opponents telling us how much they loved the episode, people messaging us via social media, Reddit, etc. Zero donations. I can't speak for Brian or Phil, but I personally find this a little bit disappointing. We put a lot of effort into every single one of our episodes, especially the Rug Delver one. The show notes were pretty intensive for that one. So it's just a little disappointing. Disappointing. And, uh, I'd like to remind everyone that our donations go towards paying our editor, Phil Blackman, who does a terrific job. And at the moment, our funds for paying Phil are beginning to dry up. And I'm just going to do a little bit of a spoil here, but if they do eventually dry up, we're probably just not going to record any more episodes. Uh, we don't really want to pay to make content. So we either get more donations or bring on sponsors that actually pay for us to do the episodes, Cardboard Live, Uh yeah, that's what I have to say. Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll just co-sign that.
2: I mean, Bryant made the point uh, well, and uh, we're happy to do this for free. We don't make any money. Uh, we just pay the editor, but we're not going to pay money to do it. So, please, if you if you like what if you like hearing us every two weeks, please throw some dollars our way. If you own some sort of company that wants the advertising slot, if you want your company's marquee at the beginning of every podcast, like. Let us know. We can set that up.
1: Okay, so life updates. I guess I'll start off since mine were first on the list. After the last episode, Brian in the episode mentioned watching Palm Springs and loving it. I watched Palm Springs that night. I loved it. My old lady, not so much. I I saw the preview for Palm Springs like a month before it was released, and I pitched it to her as like this crazy sci-fi Groundhog's Day sort of movie And I guess she had forgotten it and it got to the point in the movie where the Groundhog's Day part kicked in and she's just like, oh, this trope again. But I had already told her and uh, she was kind of just like had a sour attitude the rest of the movie where I thought like it wasn't that big of a deal because the movie wasn't really about reliving every day. Um, I mean, it sort of is, but it's more fun and like lighthearted than that. I don't know. I thought it was enjoyable.
2: Yeah, I thought it was great. And uh, does your are, we were supposed are you married to be a wife yet, or was that postponed? Fiance. Okay.
1: Does your fiance like I Terminator? Never brought it up. We both haven't watched a bunch of the classic eighty okay. movies. Like I've never watched Back to the Future, and I don't really have any interest in watching it. Um, gonna get some hate for that, but
2: all right, I'll I'll yell at you another time for that, but. Uh, I, I recently watched Terminator Dark Fate. That's the newest one with my girlfriend, and she had not seen any of the previous dozen Terminator movies, and I loved all of them. I mean, lo- I love the the world, not necessarily each individual movie, but, uh, like, I'm into all that. And I thought she would be, like, eye-rolling, like, oh, why is this guy here? Why is there two of this person? Like, what's happening Cause like time travel, especially once you get past level zero time travel into like paradoxes and loops and stuff, it starts to get really like circle jerky and can be boring. But she was into it. Like she was like, okay. And so Sarah Connor was the first movie and this is John. Where's John now? Oh, John's in the future. Okay. And this person was sent back to kill who? Oh, I see. And I was like, <laughs> okay. I was, I was impressed at how interested she was in connecting all of the timelines through my narration of everything happening in this movie, like filling her in on like 35 years of history of the the world. So uh, I was pleasantly surprised with that. And we both loved Palm Springs, (laughs) which is my point. So, uh, but I can see why someone thinking it would be a rom-com and it's suddenly like a rom-com in a time
1: loop would be disappointed. Uh, So this is my own fault. We were originally supposed to see Baby Driver the weekend it came out. And then I went to an open or something that weekend and we ended up missing it. And I was like, "Ah, I'll see it like later on in the month. And before I knew it, it was out of theaters. And I had this thing. Fun fact, I fucking love John Hamm. He's one of my favorite actors. I love, uh, I'm blanking on it now, Mad Men. And uh, I've like seen John Hamm in a bunch of stuff. Like one of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror is uh, White Christmas. And he's just like a phenomenal actor. But on top of that, he's a huge baseball fan, which just makes him go way up the ranks for me. And in my mind, like, what a dad should be is essentially what he is in Mad Memory. Like, sips on scotch and hates everything. So. <laughs> Jesus so, Christ. I don't know. It's just like the classic TV dad in my head. Don't no, don't, don't have kids. Don't oh, my whiskey. gosh. But I don't like whiskey. And that's wow. the biggest problem. Really? I think whiskey's disgusting. Oh. So. But in my mind, it's like the classic TV trope. Dad is like this old man that drinks whiskey. And, like, John Hamm is just so manly. And he's got, like, that 5 o'clock shadow all the time. So. I wanted to see baby driver and never got around to it. And then it just like, isn't on any of the streaming networks and we have them all. So uh, my old lady went to the library and she just like saw it sitting on like the rental shelf and she's like, can I rent this? So we're watching it tonight. I had to like hook up my PlayStation three because we don't have a DVD player anymore.
2: That I I love so many parts of that story that, that she was at a library. I love a physical library And that they have, like, the library is still stocking, like, movies you actually want to see. Like, big fan of that. That takes me back. And I have an Xbox 360. It's literally on the shelf next to me, like, on my computer desk, plugged into nothing. And I filmed a a video of me busting a jumpstart box earlier this week for my YouTube. And I pulled out the Xbox... To hold the camera to point at. <laughs> like, I just set a webcam on top of it. And that's the most it's been used in probably six years. So, I,
1: like, the PS3, I think the last game I played on it might have been the first Last of Us. Like and I'm being completely honest here. And the new one came out, and I'm like, oh, I would love to play Last of Us 2. But I'm not buying a new system. And, like, I just don't play video games enough. I just don't have time in my life. But, like, I think The Last of Us 2 looks really awesome. It's just a game I'm probably never going to play. But uh, other than that, baseball is back. I'm a huge, huge Mets fan, and it's already most likely going away. It probably might be gone by the time this episode airs. Uh, The Florida Marlins traveled to Philly over the weekend, and before they left, four players tested positive for COVID. They got there, played a game, tested more people positive for COVID, didn't say anything at all to the Phillies. And then uh, that morning, Sunday morning, The Phillies were made aware, and then during the game, you'll see that Bryce Harper and some other people wore face masks because they were finally made aware that some of the Marlins had COVID. And then today being Tuesday, eight more players tested positive for COVID. After Sunday, eight players and four coaches tested positive. So it's like 20 people over the last five days on this team tested positive for COVID. Um, I don't think the longevity for baseball is going to be much longer. And just imagine
2: when the schools open. Jesus Christ. <laughs> like if if, if uh, at the MLB, with all of their resources and money and the, the relatively small number of humans it has to manage, can't keep a lid on COVID. I
1: saw some stat Yikes. that like 0.2% of students die from school shootings each year and that more students would die from COVID than school shootings if we reopen. And Betsy DeVos is just like, yeah, that sounds fine.
2: <laughs> yeah, like, all right. So I I saw those stats too, and uh, 0.2 percent of the uh, U.S. population of students is about fourteen thousand and change human beings. So, like, it's okay that fourteen thousand children die, A- and like, first of all, <laughs> like that's insane. Second of all. Comparing the stat to another thing that shouldn't happen, <laughs> school shootings, like, gee, oh my, like, I, uh, we're never going to talk about magic if I get started on this. Okay, like, but I, I, I need, need to make a second say, podcast like, where I just yell about stuff. One
0: tiny thing on that. So, like, 14,000 children are estimated to die due to reopenings, but the issue is not just the ones that die, it's all the ones that get sick and then transmitted elsewhere, and it's, like, all the people who end up hospitalized and end up taking resources from people who might need them more, like... It's not like 14K people get it. It's 14K people die and, you know, 100,000 people get it or, or something like that. It's it's insane.
1: So uh, let's just make my way down my list and then we can ramble on at somebody else's. Uh, I toped the Sunday Legacy Challenge this past weekend. All my matches are on YouTube. Honestly, they're insane. Uh, like, if you go and watch, like, people have watched it and they're like, oh, I thought you were just, like, saying that to hype up your videos. No, my matches are actually just fucking insane. My rounds one, two, three, like, 5, and 7 are all just, like, back and forth crazy matches with just stuff that doesn't normally happen. So I highly recommend checking those out. Um, I wanted to mention the changes a little bit. I think on the last episode I talked about testing Thoughtseize. And it's actually one of the things I want to bring up in our Missed Shot section. But I'm back on Defense Grid. They were huge this weekend. And uh, I'm jokingly calling the list that I played the Rug Rugkilla. Uh, Rugkilla TES, just because it's running Defense Grid's main. And then four copies of Carpet of Flowers on the sideboard. I actually took a little bit of our own advice oh, from the last yeah. episode. And if Rug is going to be the most popular deck in the format, doubling the second most popular deck in the format, you got to go for the throw. And that's what my list did. Uh, I beat two out of three Rug lists in that event. Um I think even the round that I lost, it's because I drew zero protection spells in both post-board games and then still almost won because rug is so good or the carpet's so good. So check out uh those matches, and that's my section on my life updates.
2: Alright, so I watched Euphoria on HBO. It's a series, and it's phenomenal. It, it stars uh, Zendaya, who plays uh, MJ in the the MCU, uh, the Spider Man movies, and it it's about like a a kid who has all sorts of uh, like anxiety and depression and OCD problems as a kid, and then finds self medication in her like dying father's. Uh, uh, vicodin and shit when she's like 13 and then she's in rehab by 16 and this is like when she's 17 and it's just this like kind of gritty real like dark side of being a teen story but it's pretty good uh i watched the the monty python documentary that's on netflix it's a couple years old like terry jones is still alive in it but uh it's phenomenal it's it's a really great story of like from beginning to end of monty python I saw a Greyhound. That's the new Tom Hanks movie. He wrote it and starred in it. It's about the uh, Atlantic, uh, the the battles in the Atlantic during World War II, uh, getting the supplies and troops from America to Europe. There's a big section in the Atlantic that the technology of the age couldn't <clears throat> couldn't protect their ships by air support in this giant section of the ocean. So that's where like the U-boats were just like sinking. Uh, pe- uh, allied ships left and right, because there was no air support. And Tom Hanks is the the captain of one of the protecting ships that's just like zooming around, blowing up U boats and shit. And it, it's a great story. I watched Cursed on Netflix, which is a uh, a new like fantasy series, and it sucks. <laughs> it's got the girl. It's got the girl from Thirteen Reasons Why in it, which that show also sucks. So I was like already kind of off it when it started. And then like like I. I think we've talked about this on the cast before, where I like, if I'm consuming some sort of media, I want to be in it. Like, I want to be lost to the world. Like, I want to, like, watch the movie. I want to hear nothing. I want to see nothing. No, I don't want to get up for popcorn. Shut up. Don't talk to me. Like, I'm in the movie. And I had no problem just, like, stopping Cursed mid-episode to just go do something else multiple times. Like, I felt no compulsion to continue working through that show.
1: So you mentioned in the Monty Python doc how uh, someone was no longer with us. We felt like there isn't a whole lot to watch on the streaming services right now. So we started rewatching Scrubs again because it's my all time favorite show. Ted the lawyer died earlier this year from cancer. And just watching that show with him in it, because like in season one, he's in it a bunch. I'm just like, I feel so sad. Uh, I don't know. I just wanted to mention that.
2: I don't remember who Ted the lawyer is, but the
1: janitor's also no, dead. No, he's from alive cancer, and right? kicking, he was just on the podcast yeah
2: what uh there's a scrubs podcast? podcast
1: with uh donald Faison and zach braff i listen to it it's twice a week it's phenomenal uh they talk about how much marijuana they smoke and a bunch of other stuff i guess uh kelso the chief of medicine i guess he was the highest person on set the entire time like he's just like checked out mentally by the time the show had started it's great
2: Right. Yeah, I I thought the janitor died, but
1: I'm glad to hear uh, he's alive. I loved him. He has like a weird record, according to the podcast, that he did like 19 consecutive years of television that all ran for a very long time. He did nine years of Scrubs and then did the middle for 11 years. And I guess he's in like elite company where only there's three actors that have done consecutive TV seasons like that.
2: Yeah, that's crazy. Good for him. (laughs) What a boss. All right, so uh, our our weekly scheduled grill content. Bryant and I have been talking about grilling a lot. I, I sent the group chat a picture of me grilling pierogies and I kielbasa earlier dead. this week. I had not grilled pierogies before, but it was a nice choice. Uh, I grilled wings, buffalo wings, last night. And when I finished cooking the wings and turned off the grill, the inside of the grill remained on fire. Which... You don't notice when the grill's running because it's meant to contain fire, but when the gas stops, the fire stops. That's the deal with the grill. And it just didn't. So I spent today uh, thoroughly cleaning the grill, and there was a lot of shit in that grill. Like just char and remains of every meal I've cooked for the last two years, basically. And uh, yeah, we could have like thrown those ashes out to sea. Uh, it, It would have looked pretty convincing. There was a lot of stuff. So
1: clean that out once in a while so you've been on my to-do list and like every time i grill now and i grill <laughs> multiple times a week i just look at it i'm like i should really clean that out soon and then i just don't so maybe i'll do it this weekend yeah i mean from
2: my experience the second time that it catches on fire you'll be like okay it's time to clean that so it has a nice <laughs> built-in <laughs> warning system that it needs to be cleaned. uh we touched on this a little already. I, I don't want to get too far into it. I, I know Phil's going to talk about it too, but like, uh, panic mode is starting to set in with going back to school, uh, with the COVID on the rise in America. Uh, all of my my coworkers are just in frantic group texts and group emails and just shooting back and forth and like compiling lists of questions and like open letters to our administration and like with dozens of signatures on it and basically unanimously we're all like this is insane we don't want to do this so uh, i don't know what that's going to look like we're getting our our full reopening plan is supposed to be delivered later this week to us and i'm saving any full freakouts until i know what is and isn't covered in that but uh really it's not going to be good no matter what they do
0: yeah i guess i should just cut in here and just like say my piece because i yeah let's get this done (laughs) um My school is doing a hybrid plan where some people are going to be working remotely and some students are taking classes in person, some remotely. Um, I am currently on the full remote side of the equation, Uh, so I feel very, very lucky that I don't have to be in the midst of total freakout. Um, but I have a lot of concerns for my coworkers and students, and I, I fully expect to be full remote by the end of the semester. Like, I just can't envision worlds where we're not.
2: Yeah, I think that the, the return to school will be just millions of human beings converging in a spot and then diverging back to where they came from multiple times a week is just exactly what we've been trying to avoid for the last four and a half months. Uh, it's exactly what has kept it in check as far as it has so far. And it's just... I, I think that we will be shut all the way back down by November. Like, if not more immediate than that. So uh, it, it just sucks that the, the children and teachers are the people who have to eat the brunt of that. And we can't just listen to scientists and not
1: do you it. Have to... It's also real You have weird. to appreciate the irony that the all lives crowd is like, "Yeah, it's okay if we sacrifice some old people in order to get the economy back going, but it's not just old people, it's people of all ages, but, you know."
2: Yep. As long as they're not cops, they <laughs> can die. <laughs> right. Yeah, They probably deserved it. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, another side tangent. So, uh in uh, in Austin, Texas, I believe it was, like two days ago, a, a protester got like run over and shot by like a counter protester, like just some like fucking maniac civilian just like uh, drive by shooting and or ran over. I don't know exactly this, the the method of death, but this guy died and the Austin chief of police like tweeted the next day like, like he had it coming. He came out looking for a fight and he found one and the guy who killed him was in custody and then released.
1: What the fuck?
2: Yep, and that's that's just the actual like local police department. That's not even talking about the federal shock troops that are on the ground in Portland, just uh, against the wishes of Portland's government or civili- or citizens. Like they're just uh, unmarked, quote unquote, police sent by the federal government. I believe they work for the Department of Homeland Security and they're there to, quote, quell terrorism. And they're using all of our like post 9-11 terrorism legislation to just disappear protesters off the street. And it's super fucked. And that's America in 2020 during a pandemic. Also,
1: what I don't get about this whole situation is why specifically Portland? You're not really hearing about this in other places. Like, what about Portland? Is Donald Trump like, you know, I don't like their basketball team. We're going to send, you know, the secret service out there to kidnap protesters. Like what's the deal?
2: Know. I don't know. Maybe like Portland is one of those, like uh Northwestern progressive cities. Like maybe, maybe the protesters were getting too much ground there. Maybe felt the local government was being too accommodating of them. Like, I don't know, maybe just like threw a dart on a map. That's where they went. Like, he's known for punishing local government who don't suck his dick. So like he, maybe the the mayor of Portland or the government uh, of the state were just like, uh, we don't like you three years ago. And he's like, you know what? Here come the shock troops. Maybe you should have liked me. So uh, it's hard to know, but uh, the, but uh, William Barr has promised that they will be in other places like Chicago and other cities that Uh, quote-unquote need the help so and and the the mayor of chicago said he will be arresting any federal troops who show up because they're not welcome there and they don't have jurisdiction but i don't know how that's gonna go like are the the local cops who would need to do the arresting gonna side with that or are they gonna side with you know the people that were there to back them up i don't know it's fucked and i i don't wanna (laughs) i i i this is, like, the freakiest thing happening to me, like, even beyond the pandemic.
0: Oh, yeah, it's so hard to expend emotional energy on everything when, like, we have to fight fascism and the pandemic at the same time. Like, holy crap.
2: Right. And and in a lot of places, like, the fascists are using the pandemic to push agendas. Like, uh, when, when they were breaking up protests originally, they when they lost, like, legal ground to, like, break up a free assembly, they were like, well, you're congregating a group too big for pandemic restrictions and that they use that. Uh, the administration has been using the pandemic to just peel away all sorts of environmental regulations. Like all sorts of safety regs are just being uh, pushed under the rug. Like it, the, the, the low key word uh, to corporations right now is do what you got to do to make a profit. Like we know it's tough. Like we're going to look the other way on all the stuff that's normally holding you back. You know, the things that keep their workers and environments safe, like all of that is just getting torn away. Uh, there was a, a chicken plant, I think it was in like New Jersey or Delaware, that uh, it's actually increased productivity significantly, like like a 10 or 20 percent increase in productivity during the pandemic because they're allowed to ignore all of their uh, regulations and, and their workers are just getting sick and they have no protections and, but they're making money hand over fist cause they're cranking out these chickens. So that's happening also. <laughs> what a good time to be alive and trying to do a magic podcast. All right. Uh, so the PT final was this past weekend. I've been working on that for weeks and talk about your missed shots. Uh, I, in a field where growth spiral decks and wilderness reclamation dominated everything, they were sixty-five percent. Uh, so, reclamation was sixty-five percent of the metagame, and growth spiral was like in the high seventies. I think it was how the breakdown was. And I built a deck, or I I tuned a deck with two of my teammates, uh, Dylan Nolan and Mark Jacobson. The three of us played the same seventy-five to just smash teamer wreck and it was white weenie <laughs> the classic white weenie and you know what they say friends don't let friends play white weenie and i did it anyway and in the field that was 65% reclamation decks i played against teamer wreck 0 times in 6 rounds and i lost to all of the other decks that i knew i would lose to i was just hoping to get paired against the deck that everyone was on so big miss shot there um we, we've been breaking it down in the postmortem for the team, and uh, I had a lot of brilliant minds working very hard on Team Iraq. I think our team had the best list and the best sideboard plans, and I had access to it and just decided not to do that. Uh, we, we put uh, one into the top eight, Alan Wu, and we put one into top 16, Austin Bercevich. And then, uh, I don't know where everyone else landed, but I think, like, it was basically just, like, me, Dylan Nolan, uh, the, two of the three white weenie guys, and, like, uh, Cyrus Cormac I think we were the only ones on the team who didn't make Day 2. So, the team did very well, and I chose to not do the great thing that they all did. So, ouch, but is what it is. But the good news is, I get to play Magic Online again. Uh, the All this PT testing for the past months has just kept me chained to Arena. And since I've been back on Magic Online, I recorded a video with the new Shark Still deck. Uh, I made some changes to it. I think it's pretty great. That league is available. Uh, I bombed out of the Energy Legacy open with the same list that I recorded the video with. All the games were close, but uh, I, I just need to tune it some more. Uh, I I do believe that Sharknado and Hall of Heliod's Generosity are real, and people should get used to it being in Legacy. Like, that, that engine is seriously fucked. And if you haven't seen my my video like i i have the full league playthrough but i also have like a two and a half minute just like highlight reel of uh me coming back from an opponent who had jace unopposed for four turns oko unopposed for like 15 turns and i won the game because i was able to get sharks and heliod cranking it's pretty sick
1: if you're interested in more of that too cal and white smith top aided the uh legacy challenge this weekend and had a little bit of a different take than Brian's list. So if you just want to check out more shark still sort of stuff, you can also check out his four color list.
2: Yeah, the the just those two cards. They're 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 a pretty slim package. Just like the hall being a a colorless land is a kind of a big cost to put in your deck. But even just having like three shark nados, uh, like that's what Callum did. He he's a stone blade list, four color stone blade, and he has three sharks in one hall. And it's just this like. Fucked up late game engine that everyone's going to have to plan for when they play against you. So uh, I think there's a lot of a uh, lot of shells you can put that small package into, and uh, it, it's it's the real deal. I'm into it.
1: What do you think about me adding it into the Epic Storm? Like, do you think Shark Typhoon would be good to reveal the ad nauseum?
2: Do you have enough white sources uh, to support Hall? Well, I have th- th- up to four copies of Mox Opal. You could sack LED and just put it on top. Oh my god, that that's really good. Alright, so uh, Brian's going to work on that. Uh, that's going to be Epic Storm version 11.0. Uh, so, I, I've also been played several vintage leagues. Like last night, I just like logged into Moto. I didn't record any of it because I was on some me time, and I just played four leagues in a row with various flavors of Paradoxical Outcome, and I'm, I'm testing for this week's Gen Con Online, which I'm pretty stoked about. By the time this Episode airs, I think it's going to be mostly over, but there's Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, there's a Vintage and Legacy trial each day, and then Sunday is the the format championships for everyone who 4-0'd a trial during the week, and I'm signed up for all six trials, so... I'll be doing that. I'm going to record all of those uh, while I'm playing them. Can we go off topic for a second and talk a little bit more about Vintage PO? Absolutely not. <sighs> nope. We, we we only talk about Magic the Gathering legacy format.
1: We are podcast. eternal glory. Eternal. All right. All right. Let's talk about PO. So I do I play a lot of Vintage, especially Paradoxical Outcome. And I feel like I've made a fairly recent um, break in the deck. And maybe this is something you'd like to know for this weekend. So... The way that I play my PO list is it's often, you're almost like a combo control deck. My deck plays eight main deck counters and then can cyborg up to uh, 12. And it, I mean, it's not really a control deck, but you get to act like a control deck a lot in Vintage because people don't play creatures. And one of the things I've noticed is I've cut a lot of the cute cards like Mystical Tutor. I don't play wheels. There's a Magic Online user, the Power Nine, that is very good. And they like to play a more combo-focused list with, like, Wheel of Fortune, Time Twister, Mind's Desire, Mystical Tutor, those sort of cards. But those cards don't really allow you to play a more controlling game. The way my list is built is I have, like, two Lavinias, a Teferi, and more Cantrips, like, Preordain, that sort of thing. Because, like, with your Sprite Dragons out of the board, Preordains are actually pretty good. Well, a bigger innovation that I've made recently is I've cut the main deck Hercules Recall, which seems insane. But I'm sick of having a card in my deck that's either a 2 or a 10, and I'd prefer cards that are more like seven or eights. So I'm just playing two copies of Teferi now because it acts like a repeal. And I don't play repeal because that card's awful. And it's just been so good having two copies of Teferi because it crushes the control mirrors. It's still good against shops. You get the bounce of sphere. It takes a hit. And you just don't have a bad card. And like when you're trying to face down four-color death rate decks, you're not like, oh, great, I drew hercules Recall. I guess I lose.
2: Yeah, your uh, your list from the most recent challenge. I think you top 16ed or something. Uh, I I found your list. That was one of the four leagues I played, and I played a power nine list, and I played Giner's, uh bizarre PO list, which is completely bananas and super cool. Though I'm not convinced it's better than just PO. Uh, though though I did win some games I wouldn't have with normal PO, but I also lost a lot because I had bizarre Baghdad in my hand <laughs> in my blue control deck. So uh, I, I tried, uh, like, four different lists, and I'm going to amalgamate them into what I want. But I did like the Teferis a lot. I hated not having a Hercules Recall, though.
1: If you're dead set on playing a Harkle's Recall, cut the Breach.
2: I'm going to cut the Breach. That card didn't do anything. Okay. So, yeah, uh, cutting Breach, like, the the league I played your list in felt the best out of all of them. But every time I was, like, like, every time I went to the sideboard, Breach went straight out. And I drew Breach once and was like, oh, yeah, that's in the deck. It was like round five. I was like, I'm glad I didn't draw this any earlier, though. Uh, I imagine it it does cool things. It is a busted engine. So uh, I, I respect the choice, but I'm probably going to cut it.
1: Well, the big thing is that it's a non-blue engine against Xerox that, like, they can't Pyroblast post-board.
2: Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool.
1: Anyway, I guess we can get back to other stuff.
2: All right. Yeah, the last thing I want to say is that I, I finally took the plunge and purchased a license to video editing software. Everything I had done previously was just sort of like low or zero editing or like on the fly editing. Like I would just pause the recording when my opponent was in the tank and turn it back on. And that was me editing out dead space. Uh, so like uh, my my playthroughs are still going to be like two and a half hour affairs where I, I, you just hear me talk for two and a half hours because that's kind of the point like, hearing my train of thought while my opponent's in the tank. Like, what are they thinking about? What if it's this? What if it's this? Like, you can't really edit that out, but I'm also going to start featuring, like, highlight reels and stuff of uh, more edited content, so I'm going to be working on that, so I'm excited to have
0: that new project.
1: Phil, you've been pretty quiet. Why don't you uh, chime in?
0: I mean, I only have a couple of bullet points here under my stuff. Um... So previously, um, I was talking about how I was kind of like unsure about like whether or not my content model was working, and so like I talked with my subscribers, and uh, I'm going to be making some changes going forward. The super short version is that I'm going to start increasing the price point of donation leagues slightly, and I'm going to be mixing things up a little bit more. Uh, so there's going to be a considerable amount of like. Monster Train content on my channel. I'm going to play some other, like, non-legacy formats from time to time. I received my first vintage donation uh, that I think I'm playing on Saturday. Got uh, an interesting, like, painter grindstone vintage deck that Nathan Lepetz has been playing. And, like, normally I would just kind of, like, poo-poo and go, like, is that a vintage deck? But I... He has enough results that make me think, like, okay, maybe there is something to this, even if it's not something that I'm super familiar with.
2: Yep. Red Blast is a hell of a card in Vintage. Like, even more than Legacy. Yep.
0: Like, if you get to be countering Ancestrals and stuff with it, like, it, it can't be that bad. Um, yeah, as far as the Monster Train stuff goes, I have a daily YouTube series now. Um, I'm north of 250 hours into that game already. Uh, which is pretty insane, considering that it is a new game. Just, like, absolutely adoring that. I think that's good enough. Let's just jump into feedback. That was a long intro section.
1: All right, Phil, why don't you take the first one? All right. Um, this
0: is from Rex on Reddit, as well as a website form that we have. I really appreciate the care you've shown over the last few episodes to non-binary pronouns. I'm a legacy aficionado. And also a non-binary person. The Spotlight on Autumn was the first MTG event that made me feel welcome as a non-binary, and the Eternal Glory Podcast's advocacy was the second. Since the three of you started hosting, I've loved your analysis of the game and your championing of legacy, but it's been your consistent use of they-them pronouns and your explanations of why this is important that sealed the deal. Much love and respect. So when you have a platform You're primarily using that platform to create content. You know, all three of us are Magic the Gathering content creators primarily. But you can do things with your platform other than just make the content. And having a welcoming atmosphere is something that I think is important to all of us. And like trying to be inclusive is really important. And it may seem like the things that we're doing don't really matter all that much, a good portion of the time. But when they do matter to someone, we get comments like that, and it, like, warms my cold, dead heart.
2: Yeah, I I agree with all of that. And the the big thing that uh, I want to use this piece of feedback to highlight is that these people are out there and they're listening. Like we, we talk about it like as, you know, three, uh, straight cis white guys, uh, with a platform, like how it's right to use non-binary pronouns when possible. And it's just like, here is a real example of one of these people listening to us and benefiting, benefiting from it. Like, it's not theoretical. It's not like, you know, just maybe someday, uh, like they're out there right now. And, uh, when I, I think Sam Black, like years ago, uh, he was championing the uh removing the phrase he or she or his or her from magic cards because him his or hers covers most people but it just catastrophically fails the other ones
1: it's also so much cleaner if you just say the opponent or they or whatever instead of his or her it just makes perfect right.
2: sense right yeah like there there was a time where uh, grammar in uh, like american english grammar they was not unacceptable uh grammatically correct way to say this person but uh the the grammar has caught up with the way people use that word anyway so it it is cleaner and it it is more respectful to the people who are in fact out there and listening and here they are so thank you for
1: that feedback Stephosaurus. Alright, and our next bit of feedback is Leyline of the Void is better than Rest in Peace since it can't be countered or stifled. The downside is Tarmogoyf would still get larger. This was from Twindom on Reddit. Well, Twindom. Uh, Leyline of the Void cannot be countered, that is true, and it still can't be stifled. But stifle isn't super popular among the Rug decks, and honestly, the lists that are winning usually aren't playing stifle. And I do agree with you. The downside is that Leyline of the Void doesn't hit Tarmogoyf, which means if you're bringing in Leyline of the Void against Rug you're bringing it in to mostly just hit Dreadhorde, Arcanist, and then sometimes if those lists play Hooting Mandrills. So a card like Rest in Peace can effectively guarantee shut off multiple win conditions. And in, like Rest in Peace paired with like Pyroblast answers every single threat out of Rugged Delver. So it hits like Oko and Delver and then Dreadhorde, Termagoyf, Mandrills. That's everything. Um... I understand that two mana can be a lot against Rugged Delver, but you're also a deck that plays basic lands and counter magic of your own. That's my opinion.
2: I, I agree with everything Bryant said, and the important thing, and I'm going to talk about this a little more in my section when we're really talking about uh, the the subject for the week, but uh, think about what your plan looks like. like Against Rugged Delver, as a, a con- more controlling deck, which is the type of deck that would probably have Rest in Peace in it, you have to think about how you lose. And how you lose is when your answers don't line up. So the turn zero ley line looks better than the turn two rest in peace in some situations. But the turn two rest in peace is going to look better than every turn one or later ley line. And like, you can play two rest in peace and cantrip for it. it. You have to play four ley line to really maximize your value on a card like that. And then if you do have the opening one, like you don't want the other three in the deck. And are you going to mulligan to it in a matchup where uh, every card counts? So I I just think there's a lot of fundamental problems with Leyland of the Void against Delver.
1: All right. And then our topic for the week, now that we are finally here. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for sticking it out, folks. We put up a, we asked a question on Twitter, like, what would you, the fans, like to hear about this week? And the winner was Michael James Noble from Philadelphia. Hi, Mike. Mike says, I would like to hear stories about ideas that you had. The higher the stakes, the better. That blew up in your face. What didn't work? Bonus points for atrocious versions of the Epic Storm in particular. Thank you for listening, Mike. We greatly appreciate you responding and your continued support of the Eternal Glory podcast.
0: We, in fact, like it so much that this is going to
1: be the topic for the rest of the
0: episode. So uh, legitimately, thank you. Uh, We have some horror stories to tell. Um, and I'm going to start with kind of a, a deep dive on uh, one atrocious failure from my recent past, and then we're going to kind of go into a lot of other examples more narrowly. So the stage is the Legacy Premier League in 2019. Uh, so for background, this is when Renin Six rug Delver is all of the rage, and it's also the narrow period where both rug Delver and... Or, sorry, where both Renin6 and, and Oko are legal at the same time, and Hex Drinker is one of the primary flex, slets, flex slots in Rug Delver. So, in doing all my testing for this event, I hadn't figured out how to beat Oko with Red Prison yet. Um, I was conceptually approaching the matchups wrong at the time, but I didn't figure that out for another two months. Um, Renin Six and Plague Engineer were really popular cards in the format, making all the X ones of DT kind of, uh, you know, atrocious. And given how many X ones are in that deck, even if you hedge a little bit, um, life was still hard. And that left me in a really weird spot for deck selection, because those are my, like, two go-to decks when I have a tournament that matters. And to boot, I was in a pod that was really tough. I was in a pod with Autumn, Julian, and Bob. I was expecting Bob to play depths and both Autumn and Julian to be on rug delver and I ultimately was right and I set out to try and figure out you know what should I do in order to combat this and one of the coolest things about the legacy premier league is that we were working with open decklists at the time and this was before open decklists were you know super popular and I I had this idea and I'm not gonna say it was healthy but it happened um so let's let's start with some fellow podcaster feedback if you're expecting to play against rug delver in 2019 what are you gonna bring to the table
1: not mono black pithing needle. Dot deck.
0: okay good I settled on mono blue pithing so oh
1: crap I was so close I, I knew it was something like that uh, that was the year I flamed out it, I'm pretty sure I tried to play humans and then... Something else, and I lost because that Elkin whatever isn't a human, and I just like auto clicked human like an idiot. But I'm done talking now. We'll get back. Yeah, there, but... I don't know. You lost to
0: some really bad player on a terrible deck, if memory serves, in a matchup that you clearly should I have won. I can't
1: remember. I black out the game title info. That
0: makes a lot of sense. All right. Anyway, so with these open deck lists, I had this brilliant or terrible idea. Like, I'll, I'll let my co-hosts decide. Um, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about Pithing Needle when deck lists were open. The format is full of, like, Renin Six, Oko, Hexdrinker, Fetchlands. Like, I'm expecting Bob, Bob to be on, like, a deck that Pithing Needle is just, like, so, so good against as well. And I just could not stop thinking about, like, turn one Pithing Needle, the most critical card of your deck. If it gets countered, I have seven more Pithing Needle effects in my main deck. And so I went out and I started brewing this mono-blue artifact Stompy deck built around Pithing Needle and Sorceress Spyglass. And I didn't necessarily think that this was the best idea ever, but it was such a unique angle of attack that I felt like a genius for trying it out. And, and I just, like, had to go there. I, I just absolutely could not pass up on the opportunity to try this out. So, um, I brewed this deck featuring Urza, Master of Ethereum, Karn Sion of Urza as, like, the primary, like, beatdown cards. And I supplemented it with this tr- Trinket Mage package that included things like Walking Ballista and Basilisk Collar to, like, give me Removal and Life Gain versus Delver, and I was thinking, hey, I'm going to have a you know, 12-12 Construct, throw Basilisk Collar on it, connect with it once, and they're not coming back from that ever. And I sat down to goldfish this deck. And I goldfished it for like two hours, I like tweaked the build a bunch, redid my mana base to make the numbers work out a little bit better, goldfished it again for another hour or two, and I was pretty happy with it. The thing was, how can you playtest a deck that is specifically built for open deck lists? You can't just jam it into leagues, right? Like, because the entire reason this deck might conceptually work is because you know what your opponent's playing. So that left me in a very difficult position, especially when a lot of the people that I would normally test with are involved with the Legacy Premier League in one way or another. So I just, like... Said, the heck with it, we're going to try it and see what happens. So, I got to the actual matches themselves, and I just got rolled. I did not put up a fight in any of the games. I just got Delvered twice and was, like, out of contention in the pool stage for that portion of the tournament. So, like, before I get into, like, my thoughts on that, you know, Bryant, you were involved in this event. What did you think when you saw my my Madman decklist?
1: I don't think it's appropriate to say on air. Yeah, but. that's fair. <laughs>
0: um, I, I sent the list to Bob after I submitted it because we were in the same pool. And he's like, is this a joke? Is this a joke? Oh God, how do I ever beat this? And then it was just like not relevant because I got rolled by Delver twice. Oh well. So I felt like I had a really cool idea here. Like Like I had noticed something and thought of something that people hadn't thought of before. And, like, I had a really cool observation about the format. And conceptually, I don't think what I did was absolutely crazy, but I just underestimated the high power starts that my opponents could have. And, and I did nothing in two rounds. Like, I might have shut off their Okos, but, you know, resolve a Tarmogoy, Days Force the next two plays, get someone dead real quickly.
1: And. You mentioned that you wanted to play because of Hex Drinker. My first thought was, yeah, you can Pithy Needle their Savannah Lines, but eventually Savannah Lines will kill you. And Pithy Needle doesn't do anything to advance your board state, which is all what Magic's really about at the moment. Magic is, uh, for I should say, like, Legacy, but it's really Magic, I guess. Right now, it's about, like, pushing the advantage and getting ahead and, like, cutting off your opponent's outs. And really, just, like, cards like Uro are insane because they both play catch-up and they're so good when they're ahead. And... Like pithing needle just doesn't do anything really. Like yeah, I can shut off a planeswalker, but are they pushing their advantage another way? And pithing needle doesn't really push an advantage; it kind of just lives.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. let me
2: uh, let me have a a brief counterpoint. That's only kind of a joke. Uh, in the energy uh, legacy open that I played last weekend, I played against F seven eleven in round two, and he boarded in pithing needle against my shark typhoons, and he had it on turn one, and I fucking died. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, I think I had three of them and I had like one in my opener and I was like, we got this. And then I think I died with three of them in my hand and he just picked me to death with Delvers, And I had like six lands in play. I could make four four sharks and just eat Delvers for breakfast. But he brought in his one bathing needle like it was an open deckless tournament. So like he correctly saw and identified a thing that I didn't like I could have brought in my my disenchant, uh to plan like counterplay for that, but I just didn't. And he got me good. Pithing needle, OP, turn one win. So F711, by the way, is a person that we all know, and we know that he is a he. So (laughs) after our long talk about pronouns at the beginning, and now I'm just calling an opponent, he that is a known person. And that's a safe one to use.
0: Yeah. So ultimately I kind of like tunnel visioned on this, like really cool idea And registering this deck list, like, absolutely blew up in my face and made the rest of the tournament significantly harder for me. Like, I had a good run throughout the rest of the tournament, but, um, you know, things could have been very different if I got some early wins. So I don't regret trying this at all, but this is one of those times where, like, not only did I miss the shot, I don't know that I even got the ball into the air when I attempted to shoot here. Like, Julian was confused as heck when i submitted this deck list the commentators had like literally no idea what i was thinking when they were like trying to say like explain what this deck list was trying to do they were they were just like lost i just had this like mad scientist next level strategy that i was trying out and like boy it did not work this was like a well-sculpted deck around an idea that just was not good enough together
1: I just want to say that I miss Legacy Premier League. Julian, please bring it back.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll co-sign that. Uh, I have not competed in it, but I did do commentary once, and I always enjoy watching it. But, Phil, on your... So, learning from the mistakes. So, like, it's fun to just, like, you know, dunk on ourselves with uh, these are ways we fucked up. But the important thing is to follow up with a lesson. So, Phil, do you think that just fundamentally the Pithing Needle strategy was bad for that tournament? Or do you think you just missed the, like, the Delver plays or something? Like, could you have shoved some, like, Ensnaring Bridges in your deck? Or, like, uh, I don't know, Brazen borrow probably wasn't printed yet. I, I don't know, like, something to answer a, a permanent that's bearing down on your life total if it gets through your defenses. Like, is that something that could have plugged the hole in that deck? Or was it just fundamentally not acceptable?
0: So, if I were going to do this again, I would have... Uh... Pulled aside someone like I don't know, like Tom Hap or someone, and said, "Hey, can you spend a couple hours testing this matchup for me, um, so that I could have gotten a couple of like real games in with it?" I think that that was something important that I just kind of like ran out of time and didn't do. Um, that was a starting point. As far as like other other lessons there, I probably just have to admit that I just made. A mistake in trying to do something that was innovative for the sake of doing something innovative instead of just doing something that was powerful. You know, I, I was playing against three absolutely amazing players. You know, this wasn't your regular legacy league or anything like that. This was perhaps not the uh, the opportunity to uh, to bust out the uh, the new untested deck.
2: Yeah, wasn't reigning world champion Javier Dominguez in that tournament? Yes. Is that, yeah, <laughs> that was a stacked. The event fill, was really. stacked. Yeah.
1: That's why I had to leave early.
0: Uh, yeah. Makes sense.
2: You have anything else for, for that, Phil?
1: No, I
0: I, I think that, that pretty much does it. So, I know you wanted to talk about, like, some well-reasoned decisions that didn't really pay off. And I know your recent Pro Tour experience was one of those that we already kind of hit on in the intro.
2: Right, so... So instead of, like, Phil had this one phenomenal example that he did a deep dive on, and that was a really cool way to look at it. Uh, I took my section a little differently. Uh, Like, I broke it into well-reasoned decisions that just didn't pay off, and then I have good decisions based on a flawed framework, and then I have bad decisions in a bad framework. So (laughs) I'll save that banger for last. But, so... I'm going to start with things that I think were well-reasoned, uh, pretty good decisions that, I mean, Magic is a game of variance, uh, the way tournaments are paired, uh, all of that plays in. Uh, you can make a great meta call and just uh, hit the 35% of the field six rounds in a row that didn't play the deck you met it for. That was like my my PT experience that we already talked about Um Another version of that, there's a, a local store that does a store championship every year. It's a free 5k for everyone who qualifies. And it it's three rounds of legacy, three of modern, three of standard, and then the top eight is booster draft. So it, it's a marathon, but it always starts on legacy. So that's a weird tournament to metagame for because it's gonna be a small meta. Like normally between like 50 and 80 people qualify for this thing. And a lot of them qualify, like, the, the routes to qualify are, like, outright win any Saturday tournament, which could be any format from limited to vintage, or top eight two Saturday tournaments in a month, or outright win two weekday events in the same week. And so it's, like, Monday Modern, uh, Wednesday Standard, uh, to Thursday Legacy, Friday Draft. Like, if you w- outright win and any two of those in a week, you qualify. So... The people in the field came from a variety of formats. So metagaming for this, I have to play three rounds against a field that's like half people who may not even play legacy and half legacy ringers. Because Pittsburgh does have a robust legacy scene and we also have a robust everything else scene. So uh, at the time uh, the legacy players in Pittsburgh were really into just blue white miracles, which, uh, I I have some large part of because a lot of the people I talk to a lot, they watch my content, they interact with me. They see me around the shop. They see what I'm playing and they learn from me. And, uh, basically miracles mirrors were just my lot in life at this point. And so I gave up my mono basic mana base to add red to the deck to beat the miracles mirrors, uh, so I added a bunch of non-basic lands, put a bunch of Red blasts on the sideboard, and in my three rounds of that tournament, I played against Death and Taxes, Burn, and Burn. So uh, not only was my sideboard dead, like those Pyroblast don't do anything, but I added a bunch of non-basic lands that get punished by Wasteland and Back to Basics, or uh, Price of Progress. So I still managed to string together a 2-1, but it, it was one of those things where it was like, well... <laughs> Here we are. I think I made. I think I made a reasonable choice, and the fact that I I still two one the the pod even though it was uh, so hateful against my build, uh, I think still validates the choice that I could win anyway without these cards. I would just go on easy mode if I got to use them, but that was still just like a shit, because <laughs> like. Uh, If I wasn't playing those cards, I would have had a ton of shit for Burn, because that's the other thing. Like, if nobody's played Legacy before, they're going to be on Burn.
1: So, your story here reminds me a lot of people testing for PT-25, because a lot of the Legacy community was saying, hmm, we think Death and Taxes will be big, because it's a deck that skilled players like to play. rug Delver, because that's another skill-testing deck in Miracles. And because when you think of pros, you think of people that are really good at magic. Well, when you look at the decks that actually showed up for a PT25, Black Red Reanimator, a huge showing. Eldrazi, really big showing. There was some Rug Delver in the field, that's true. And Alan Wu, the genius, crushed with Death and Taxes. But for the most part, Death and Taxes wasn't really seen outside of Alan Wu. And then another big breakout deck from that weekend was off the map, which is Death Shadow. Because it's just an efficient deck. But the decks people were preparing for, like, Miracles wasn't anywhere. And at the time, they expected that to be a major player. Because it's a good deck. But sometimes you have to think of the audience in the event. And if it's people that aren't really familiar with Legacy, do you think they're going to pick up a really tough deck to play like Miracles? Probably not.
2: Yeah, like, I, I listened to the Humans of Magic podcast uh, with uh, Lucas Esper-Berteau and... Uh, He, I believe, got some coaching lessons from you, Bryant. And I know he spent time on Thraben University reading about uh, matchups with and against Death and Taxes. And he gave both of you shout-outs in that episode of Humans of Magic. But his point was, like, pro Magic players play standard and draft. Like, you are the expert in legacy. (laughs) Like, I need to hear from you. Uh, I I don't know this stuff. Like, there's a lot of skills that transfer, but, like... uh, because someone is really good at draft at the pro level doesn't mean they can just pick up death and taxes or miracles for a pro tour. So uh, that, that point is well resonates and confirmed by one of the people uh, themselves who did it. Uh, Also like a couple years ago uh, during the uh, earlier iterations of the star city open series, Huey Jensen was just smashing with sneak and show all the time. And when interviewed, he, he just sort of like shrugged. He was like, I don't know, it's really powerful and it puts big monsters into play. <laughs> like, like yeah, he, he's one of the greatest players of all time and uh, he was making good mulligan decisions and I'm sure playing super tight, but his deck choice wasn't like Sneak and show is the smartest deck with I can use my big brain and magic powers to leverage over my opponents. He was like, it's
1: powerful and it, I <laughs> to smash big monsters into play. I would like to say that Brian does not speak for all of us. We know there's another legacy podcast out there where they feel like show and tell is a very difficult card to play. We are not attacking them by any means or their intelligence.
2: One time, uh, one, Gerald May, who may or may not be associated with that other podcast, posted one of my favorite memes that I think about at least once a week. It was a picture of a chimpanzee in a tuxedo. And the caption was, when you foil out show and tell. (laughs) (laughs) and I think about that regularly and that was from the man himself it was not a hateful attack he knows what he is
0: so (laughs) all right so one more show and tell anecdote while we're here so I love Jerry Thompson's content like he has done some incredible work and I I played a lot of his decks in the past and he was writing about how he was getting like absolutely destroyed playing sneak and show and he just didn't get it he was trying to, like, carefully navigate all of these situations, play around all the things that his opponent had, and then he, like, walked up to the sneak-and-show players at the top tables, and he, and he just started watching them play. And they just, like, fucking went for it. Like, not playing around anything, just, like, fucking go for it. And he was just like, oh, is, is this what I should be doing? Like, the first time do you just, like, fucking go, and then if it doesn't work, you, like, sculpt a little bit later? And, like, it was just, like, totally foreign to him that he should, like, not be trying to play around things. And that was sometimes going to be better than playing around things. And it was just, like, this, like, mind-changing moment for him. Yep, definitely. So I
1: I don't know if I've mentioned this in, like, a long, like an episode a long time ago, but I'm going to talk about it again. Because it's, like, one of my favorite Jerry Thompson stories. Like I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I used to read all of his content. Well, when I started going to Star City events in late 2011, early 2012, Jerry Thompson had crushed a few opens in a row with Shardless Bug. It was like the breakout of Shardless Bug, and I was at one of the next events. And I'm watching Jerry Thompson play the mirror round one, and Jerry's facing an opponent that had clearly copied his decklist from the week before, and they're in a mirror match. Jerry, like, mulliganed to five in game three and just, like, was slowly losing the game. His opponent resolves a Jace the Mind Sculptor, has a Tarmogoyf of, of their own. They hem to tower rock Jerry, discarding Jerry's only card, and then use Jace to unsummon Jerry's Tarmogoyf and pass the turn. Jerry looks defeated, extends the hand, says good games, gets up, goes wherever. I go out to the lobby, I catch up with one of my friends and I'm talking, and Jerry Thompson comes up to talk to one of my friends. And I say, hey man, I was watching your match, that's really brutal. And Jerry's like, ah, oh, it happens. Like, do you know how much magic I play? He's like, bad beats happen. Like, it's just another round of magic. And it was just so enlightening to me that he was so positive about something that had just happened that was super unfortunate and at a large event. Because I didn't go to Star Cities every weekend. Where at the time, Jerry and Alex Pernicini, they were every single weekend grinding another Star City. It just had bus value to them. And it really opened up my eyes at the time to in reality these are all just cardboard events like who really cares
2: yeah uh that that's a big thing that uh i have to consciously remind myself of when i'm at tournaments like i i don't think i'm a rager i hope i haven't been rude to too many <laughs> opponents over the years but like i don't go every weekend i'm not a star city grinder i'm not a gp grinder like i i go to like um six or seven a year and it's the ones I can get to on a weekend and get back in time for work on Monday so like a like a loss especially like to miss day two or like to miss cash or whatever is like really heavy to me because I just do it so infrequently but success in magic like long-term success it's about law of averages like if you're an above average player you just have to show up enough times and you'll rack up top eights and uh compared to uh someone like me who shows up sometimes and really wants to top eight like i'm doing it backwards and i know it and i just have to remind myself of that uh that it's a tough game with a lot of in- inherent uh variants built in so uh that that is a good I, i've heard jim davis make a similar comment in the past uh like it's like i play so much magic like i i a loss is a loss whatever that that's a thing all right, I'll, I'll get back to my section now. this has been the uh, the staying on topic this week has been a missed shot. So,
0: <laughs> Got real meta there. And, and I think
2: that's fine. All right, so another well-reasoned decision that didn't pay off. Uh, when Grix's Delver was at its height, I decided to learn how to play lands, like red green lands. Uh, I think Thespian Stage was, like, a pretty new card at the time. Uh, I, yeah, that was in the same block as Deathrite Shaman, so uh, that, that's about right. Like, the the innovation to lands as, like, a Merit Lage combo deck instead of just, like, a Mindslaver Prison deck had just recently happened. Jarvis was crushing with it. Uh, some of my friends were doing well with it, and I was like, uh, F these Delver Mirrors. I'm going to play lands and just beat Delver. So I played lands at one of the eternal extravaganza events run by tales of adventure back when they did those. And it also happened to be the week that mono red prison figured out it could also beat Grixis Delver and lands. So uh, there were a lot of blood moons in that room. And I think Jarvis and I put up like a one in five between us in that tournament, uh, <laughs> both of us on lands. So I, I think that, that was, like, a pretty reasonable decision based on Grixis Delver being the best deck. But it didn't pay off because someone else figured out a deck that beats the best deck and the deck that beats the best deck. <laughs> so that was uh, that was a very smart time to be a mono-red prison player and a very bad time to be a lands player. Yeah.
0: As a follow-up there, on the weekends where red prison is good, like, holy shit, it is the best deck in the room by a vast margin. And on the weekends where it's bad, like... You ask yourself, why on earth have you registered this deck?
2: Yes, uh, I, I that was the beginning of one of my favorite eras of Magic because I solved it the rest of the way and just played blue white miracles. Uh, that because miracles beat red prison and Grixis Delver and lands, <laughs> and uh, the last two Star City Classics before they banned Deathrite Shaman, I got ninth on breakers and first. So with Blue White Miracles, and that, that was a great era. But that, that's this is missed shots, not nailed shots. So uh, there, my next missed shot, <laughs> this one's kind of funny. Uh, it's a, a local Pittsburgh legend. Um, uh, one of our stores ran Zero Proxy Vintage for a while. Uh, it was a terrible decision. Uh, I, I believe that the store owner was willing to just bleed the vintage community dry and let it die on its feet. Uh, instead of allow proxies, just so he could sell a couple pieces of power. And he did sell a couple pieces of power, and then the Vintage community died. So, uh, mission accomplished, well played. But during those tournaments, uh, there we had what was called the Steve Rubin effect, where Steve Rubin was living in Pittsburgh at the time, and he was the only one in town who owned a bazaar of Baghdad. So, we would show up... At, on the, the Sunday morning, ready to play Vintage. And if Ruben was in the room, we would play the requisite amount of Dredge hate. And if he wasn't, we would just free up those six or seven slide board slots for everything else. And that worked out fine for a, a couple months until I think somebody figured out that we were doing that and then just borrowed Steve's Bazaars and crushed us with Dredge. <laughs> so uh, someone else made a extremely well they, they metagamed us personally, <laughs> and it was a great choice. So power to them, and you know, fuck me for being intelligent for a little while. And my last well-reasoned decisions that didn't pay off are MTG Finance related, which uh, is not something I usually dabble in. I, I've done like a few minor specs over the years. Like I hit pretty good on Natural Order when Pre- Progenitus was previewed. I hit pretty good on Dark Depths when Hexmage was previewed. But I have a lot more losses than I have wins in this category, I'm not going to lie. And at the very same uh, Eternal Extravaganza that I got crushed on lands, Eli Cassis won that tournament with Turbo Depths featuring Living Wish. And Living Wish hadn't had a reprint in a long time, and this was during a, a period of like any card that won a tournament would Spike. And I was in the room when it was happening. So I was like on eBay on my phone just buying all the Living Wishes I could find. Two things happened. One, Living Wish didn't spike when the results went out the next day at all. No motion. And uh, one of Master's 25 previews started shortly after that, which included Living Wish. So I just got uh, crushed in two directions. I I lost a ton of money on that. And uh, my bad. And I did a similar thing with Vidalcan Shackles. Uh, It was in the early days of Modern. I was playing against Harlan Fear in a Star City Open, and he just dismantled me with Vidalcan Shackles. And I was like, wow, I forgot about that card. I bet everyone else did too. But if Harlan's playing it, he's pretty visible. He's going to put up a result and it's going to spike. And they were about seven bucks at the time. I bought probably like uh, 10 to 15 of them. And they're still 7 bucks today. It's been about four years, and they are the exact same price despite no reprint. There is no casual interest. It never took off in tournament play. I have all of those Vidalcon Shackles still in my box with all my living wishes. So uh, those, going
1: back, those sorry, are two on. big misses. No, go ahead. So going back to the, uh, the Eternal Extravaganza event, personally, that was one of the worst weekends of my life. Like, just a lot of things went wrong that weekend. Uh, But one of my childhood friends lived in Baltimore and just decided he was going to play Magic again. And he's like, Bryant, what should I play this weekend? And I was like, you should play something you're comfortable with. He goes, I think I'm going to play the Epic Storm. And I go, Jim, you've never played it before in your life. He goes, yeah, but I can figure it out. (laughs) like, Jim, this deck's like a tough deck to play. He goes, nah, I'll be fine. He top the event, like, fairly easily. Never played Storm before. Like we talk about it in like the Storm group sometimes. Like when Storm is well positioned, people don't switch to play Storm because it's not really in people's wheelhouses. Jim's an anomaly. He just decided he was going to play Magic again after like four years off. Never played Storm before in his life. Just coasted. Um, it's just like so weird to me that I feel like I had to mention it.
2: He just shattered the uh, fragile Storm player aura of "this is hard and we're smart because we do it."
1: Well, that's not even it. It's just like, it could be the best deck in the format. You'll get a couple people to switch, but for the yeah, most part, they are going to keep on playing their dollars.
2: Yep. All right. So my next section is good decisions in a flawed framework. And what I mean by that is that I made a bunch of well-reasoned, smart decisions to reach a conclusion that would be true if my original hypothesis was true, which it turns out it was not. So you're basically building a beautiful house on a foundation of mud that that's what i mean by this and my biggest example of this is i played elves i worked hard on legacy elves for the entire duration of divining top miracles dominance of legacy like i i didn't start playing miracles until after they banned top like i was just an elves player during that time and uh, I was in pretty regular contact on Twitter and Facebook message with Julian. He was do- crushing with Elves over in Europe, and I was trying to do it here in America. And I played Elves in a lot of tournaments. I knew every role of every card in every matchup. Like uh, I, I was like eat, sleeping, and breathing Elves. But the problem is that if I was able to just take a step back and realize that the best deck in the format... Can Wrath of God at instant speed for one mana? Maybe I should have just done anything else during that period. Uh, you'll you'll notice that in the period, whatever period that was, uh, whatever set of years that was, I have like I got like second place in one Eternal Extravaganza, and I uh, lost a winning in at one Star City Open. So I, I have like a, a top sixteen with Elves and that other thing, and that's out of like probably 40 to 60 tournaments and that's a pretty bad conversion rate uh if you compare it to when i picked up brainstorm afterwards and uh you see like pretty regular top eight since then on my mtg goldfish account so uh i was throwing a lot of shit at the wall it was very smartly thrown shit but it still was not affecting the wall and that that's uh I, i can't i don't even want to think about how much uh Money and tournament equity and everything I hemorrhaged over those years just playing Elves in determinus
1: Yeah. You're talking about my life, Brian. Yep.
2: A lot <laughs> of this
0: rings real true here.
2: Yes. Uh, you have three people who have put a lot of effort into specific decks over the years, uh, rain or shine. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad you all feel me.
1: The one that I have the biggest regret, though, isn't even Top Miracles. It's Mental Misstep. I don't know what I was thinking. There was 0% chance that my Dark Ritual deck was ever going to be good during Mental Misstep. Like, I should have literally just played anything else. And I tried, like, a number of things, like, four main deck defense grids. Like, nothing worked. I knew nothing was going to work. But I still tried anyway. And I think that was the biggest lull in tournament success I ever had.
2: Yeah, so luckily, Misstep wasn't around very long. Like, I I think it was, like, in the format, what, like, six months, uh, if that. Something like that. But right. so funny, funny story. I've probably told it before, but I played elves during Mental Misstep too. But I adapted the deck, raised the curve, and played Food Chain Elves during Mental Misstep. And I top 64 at GP Providence uh, in 2011, was it? 2010, uh, whenever misstep was legal with Food Chain because I wanted to play elves but knew I couldn't in the face of Mental Misstep.
1: Innistrad came out after MPH, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, I was trying to think of the timeline. I'm like, I wonder if, like, Cavern was out by then, but I was like, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. There definitely wasn't
2: Cavern, and I don't believe Delverb Secrets and Mental Mistup were ever in the same format.
1: Yeah. I do remember... There was two weeks, actually. Yes, that's how I remember it. There was two weeks where they were both legal because I didn't go to Legacy Locals those two weeks because you could Snapcast or Misstep in Legacy. I'm like, I'm just not dealing with that. Oh, baby. <laughs> yeah, so I just nope. didn't go for two weeks.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, Mental Misstep was a huge mistake uh, to print at all. Uh, that notwithstanding. Uh, that, that was a shot, Wizards. Yeah, they did miss their shot. So... Uh, I, I was going to move on, but now I'm not. So <laughs> their their own reasoning about mental misstep costing Phyrexian mana was if blue gets direct damage in Gutshot, it's only fair that the other colors can counter it. And like they, they like straight faced like dead ass wrote that in an article. And then like everyone was like, just put it in your blue deck. <laughs> And, you, like, the sends the blue decks through the roof. It It's not like you can't just pay blue for it. So, uh... But, yeah, the, at the 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 end of that format where just, like, goblins had four mental missteps in it because they had to fight over their aether vials. Like, that that was so fucking
1: stupid. There was a couple like, th- philosophies I really liked during that format. First, there was the hive mind deck that ran actual zero ones, not even mental missteps to counter your opponent's mental missteps. Like, Actual zero one mana cost cards, and then there was Blue Zoo. If you remember that deck, you ran Delver, Wild Nicoddle, Step Links, Lightning Bolt, Mental Misstep, Brainstorm. Uh, it was literally just like a, a deck, it was like 41 mana cards and then 20 lands. Uh, it was brilliant,
2: yeah. All right, all right, fuck Mental Misstep, we're all in agreement on that. Another, uh, good decision on a flawed framework, uh, Grix's control during the Dig Through Time era. This was a deck that uh, Rich Shea developed. Uh, I believe he got second place in a a Legacy Open with it during this time. Uh, Chris Stagno and I were working on it with him, and the three of us put up the best results that any of us... the most consistent good results with the Legacy deck that any of us had for a while, and we were all doing it together with the same sweet list. Uh, I lost a win and in for the Legacy Open that Rich got second in on the same 75, and One huge thing that we missed with playing Grixis Control in the Dig Through Time era is that Grixis Delver got all the same engine tools that we did and could attack its opponent effectively. So we were were actually really, I mean, this speaks to the power of Grixis during this era. Like, we felt favored against everyone except Grixis Delver, who we could literally never beat. Like, this is when Noah Walker was, like, coming up, making his legacy name, just winning every tournament with Grixis Delver, because he figured it out before the rest of us did. And, like, in tournaments, we would play, like, Grixis Control Mirrors, where, like, they had Deathrite Shaman and we didn't, and that was fine, because we had some removal. But uh, the Grixis Delver literally had more threats than we had removal in our deck. And it was just a matter of time that they were going to win. And, uh, so, we were so close on that one, and, uh... All of those like second places or ninth places could have been trophies if we just put creatures that attack in our sweet uh, deck. And another one, my last one in this section uh, in honor of Mike Noble himself for suggesting this topic. I have a story about playing noble fish in vintage. That's the noble hierarch deck uh, that this was during the era that the uh, Mishra's Workshop had four Chalice of the Void, four Lodestone Golem, four uh, Thorn of Amethyst. Like, all of these now-restricted things they could just have four of. It was super fucked up. I was a Storm player up till that era, and I just had to stop. Like, it it was unacceptable. <laughs> and uh, so after playing Storm for years, I was just like, fuck it. I'm playing Trigon Predator in the main deck. I'm playing four of them. And uh, I'm going to crush these... these workshop decks like nice thorn of amethyst noble hierarch go trigon predator you're dead and that sounded pretty good in my brain like a a massive overcorrection to being sick of losing to this one deck but it turns out that they had four chalice of the void and four lodestone golem and none of it mattered like they were still just their deck had five black lotuses in it and noble hierarch despite its best impression is not black lotus and uh I lost that tournament even quicker than I did with my Storm deck. At least with Storm, I knew how to navigate the Shops matchup, but <laughs> I just fucking died with noble fish. So thanks, Mike Noble, for your contribution in my, my O2 exit from that tournament. I hold you personally responsible.
1: I was on a hangout call recently while some of us were playing Legacy with Mike Noble himself, and something that came up is Legacy is so miserable. Your opponent just always has four Chalice and four Karn. And that thought isn't always wrong. Like, Legacy is unfun sometimes in the aspect that, like, yeah, Phil's going to disagree with me here. But Chalice and Karn aren't super fun cards to play against. And I know that I'm the Dark Ritual player and tons of our listeners probably hate me and everything I stand for. But, like, at least with Dark Ritual decks, most of the time there's, like, a good back and forth. With Chalice decks, that doesn't really exist
2: that's the point of chalice
1: of the void you ran straight into it
2: like nope i'm sure like i don't know what the conversation at wizards was like when they were designing chalice of the void but they're like hey how can we pay two or four mana to end the game maybe we should print that card i'm i'm sure honestly the answer was they they weren't testing eternal formats because they don't and we know that they don't i'm sure it was just like how bad could this be in standard where cards cost like two three four and beyond and they were probably right, but like, but yeah. Uh, and I I disagree that it's a problem that Legacy gets four ofs because I think I honestly think that Vintage kind of sucks in that way where it's like you only get one of the powerful cards, but they're so powerful that they're going to warp the game anyway. And like I I would rather know I'm playing against the Chalice deck in Legacy than be playing Vintage and like. They just have their one chalice. As far as feel bads go, like that—that that feels worse to me. It's like, oh, you had the one fucking chalice. Now I lose. But I would have <laughs> mulliganed that hand in Legacy because I know they have it. That's the point.
0: For what it's worth, I don't think Card Great Creator is all that unfun. Like it's a four mana haymaker that, like, when everything goes perfectly, you can win the game next turn via Mycosynth but so much of the time, you have to do so much work to actually make Karn happen, and I, I don't think people talk about this enough. Like, your opponent has a Tarmogoyf on board, and then you play this Karn. Like, oh, minus get bridge, Karn dies. Like, there's yeah, you paid seven so and two turns. many scenarios like that where like Karn is an overpriced tutor, and I think there's more games like that than games where, like, Karn just lights out kills you. Um,
1: I don't know, Phil. I've had a lot no. of games where Karn lights out kills you. You're playing out. the fucking <laughs> artifact <laughs> mana
0: deck. Someone's
1: yeah, gotta the, the, only
2: p- the only place where Karn is a lights out boring, no fun magic card is the deck with no counterspells or creatures that relies on artifact mana. Like, the, that's literally the only situation. Like, if you rely on artifact mana but your deck has creatures in it or counterspells, you're still fine. Like, it's only Storm that just dies to karn well
1: in my match this weekend in my winning end i discovered that you can grape shot karn twice to kill it on back-to-back turns
2: oh karn got grape shot Yep, that is a thing you can do
0: i will also <laughs> admit though that if you are playing the artifact land deck like holy shit Karn. oh yeah yeah for sure brutal there
2: yeah, if Karn just comes with an attached stone rain against like a control deck or like a mid-range deck, like if you're trying to cast Urza and your opponent has Karn, you're going to lose real quick. Though, if you can stick the Urza, you can tap your land again for mana. All right. I'm going to get into my last section here, which is bad decisions and bad framework, which I don't have a lot of specific examples of this myself, uh, not not that I can remember. I'm sure, like when I was learning how to build magic decks, I did this all the time. But this is going to be like uh, people. I a lot of people send me deck lists on social media, and and that's fine. Please interact with me. That's what I'm out there for. Uh, but my most common response after pouring over a deck list I get sent is, "What's your plan here? And what are you doing better than X?" Like uh, if someone sends me like like a when I was playing Uroza, the Urza, Uro Urza deck, uh, a couple months ago, and having some fun and success with that, people were sending me all sorts of Urza decks, and I was like, I would like look at the deck list and be like, "Where's your Chalice of the Void? How are you going to survive to cast this four drop? Like, how's it going to stick against the red blast? Like, how do you actually win? Like, what is this doing better than this other deck? Like, why aren't you just playing Miracles if you want to do this? Or why aren't you just playing uh, Eldrazzi's Stomp if you want to do this?" and a lot of the time it, it comes down to like, like the, there was clearly not a plan when these cards were put together other than put Urza in a deck. And uh, that's that's not a good way to get where you want to go because you don't know where you want to go. So you're not going to get there. And that that's my head and shoulders most common feedback. What's your plan? What are you doing better than an existing deck?
1: So to piggyback on this, I'm someone that likes to have solid reasoning for every single card choice in my deck. I spend tons of hours thinking about it. It's just the way my brain works. Oftentimes in group chats, people will post a deck list and I'll say, hey, why are you playing this card? Or why is this better than this? And they're just like, eh, I like it. It drives me insane. Like you have to have a reason to want to play something other than I like this or I don't like that card. That's unacceptable to me. And if like, that's the way you think or want to go about things, I sort of just like mentally cut you out of my life because I don't want to interact with that.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of sideboards where it's clear that someone wanted a certain effect for the weekend, but it's also clear that they didn't think about like their in-out numbers for certain matchups and like the ramifications of what they were doing um like i i played a bunch of donation deck lists where like i have legitimately 15 cards for a matchup and you know 7 or 8 that i want to board out and it's just like there's so much wasted space here you could have done so much more
2: yeah, i I'm, I'm trying to pull up a uh a recent conversation i had like last week uh oh it's retrofitter foundry like after i posted my sharknado video like i i put three hours of my life into making the sharknado video i put another three hours of my life into editing the the highlight reel of the sharknado video and someone sent me uh, a message that was just like did you try retrofitter foundry in that list also how'd the lead go and i was just like okay so you didn't watch my video you have no basis to think i would want retrofitter foundry in this deck at all and here I am now answering your question, like that—that that sort of thing is like, like, where did this come from? How did we get here? And how do I get away from it? Uh, like, I—I I, I don't want to be a dick. I appreciate the people in my life. This is an old friend. It's not like a rando on the internet, but it's just like, what? <laughs> like, like I, I put so much work into creating content. And you're just like, this question
1: out of your ass. It reminds me a little bit of what I talked about, I think two episodes ago, where I spent seven hours one night updating the website to just have someone go, please make more modern content. And I wanted to scream at them.
2: Yeah, that, that, that sort of thing is tough. And like, when you pose a question to someone, uh, whether you, whether they are like, a content creator who you like, or your your best friend. It doesn't matter. Like, give some consideration to their time before you open your mouth. Like, the, if you didn't watch the League, if you don't know what the deck is doing, you don't know how the deck works, you don't know anything about the deck, don't just pop up and suggest a card. Like, my my question is going to be, what does that do? And if your answer is, oh, I just thought it would be cool then that was like 45 seconds I'm not going to get back.
1: I think I might have mentioned this before, but uh, I've noticed this a lot with talking with locals, not so much people that travel to a lot of Star Cities, but when you ask someone, like, why is X card in their deck, and they say, oh, well, Metamorphosis in my deck because it filters two colors of mana and draws a card, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking, (laughs) like, the sort of effect of, like, well, how does it synergize with your deck? What is the rationale for playing this? And oftentimes people just don't have answers it's like well i copied this deck list or i thought it would be cool um and i think that if they just went one step further they would honestly raise their level of gameplay by a lot because they would start to understand how decks are constructed a little bit more and then they could tune which would raise their gameplay and it's just like one of those level up sort of things that we didn't hit on the last episode
2: yeah uh and and i I think that's the point of this episode. The point, like I, like I said, uh, an hour ago, however <laughs> long we've been talking, that uh, the point is not to dunk on ourselves. It's to find lessons. And you're going to hit a lot more shots if you have, like, a, a real way to think about the shot before you take it. Uh, which brings me to uh, what I was going to wrap up my section on, which is, like, putting a 75 that you just thought up in front of someone with a trained eye... Might shortcut you a little bit, like if you just you know, send me your miracles list, and I'm like, this looks like a lot, of counter spells. Uh, that's not really where you want to be against like a Delver meta game. You want to play to the board, etc. And like that can that can help you uh, with your growing pains. That can be a little shortcut, but you're going to need to put some some table time onto that deck. Uh, like no amount of theory crafting is going to replace a good testing session, and especially if it's off the wall like uh, I had a friend uh, in college who was like he, he was one of these people that would constantly be thinking about just like doing something different because he could uh, he was the he was the guy at the at the draft table who would always make the joke of like you didn't play around spirit guide spirit guide metamorphose counterspell like I, he pr- I probably heard him say that 500 times in like the four years I was in college and he, he would come up with these just wonky ideas just to be different, and my response was always, "That's a deck, <laughs> looks like a deck." And he wasn't just making up ideas; he would like build and sleeve the deck and put some thought into it. You could tell, like he would show up, and one time he showed up with Boros Stoneblade, just and he was like, he handed me the deck, and it looked like it had a coherent plan, and like it didn't have counter spells in it, which seems like a problem in Legacy, but. He handed me the deck, I looked at it, it had a Stoneforge Mystic package, it had some removal, and I was like, that's a deck. Like, I have played zero games with it, I don't know how it will line up against what you're trying to beat, but these are certainly lands and spells. (laughs) I don't know what you want from me beyond that, and until you put it into play, you're not going to get anything else
0: out of it. I think that last point there is really important. Um, So I'm a content producer who does a lot of, like, variety streams and things of that nature. And I have played the Mono Black Curses deck on stream a couple of times, and, and it was fun. And Replecheap, who is one of the primary pilots of the deck, uh, keeps asking me questions about it. And at this point, you know, it's been six months since i played that deck. I don't have a feel for the, like, exact strengths and weaknesses of that deck in the metagame. And so, like, I can say... I think you need more removal for the Delver matchup, but I can't say with any authority this is the removal you should be playing because of like all your in-out numbers for other matchups, and you need to hit these threats, but you can ignore these threats. And like putting that deck into your hands and like getting that experience tells you so so much more than theory crafting can. Like I, I can look at something and I can give you my opinion on it. But without those reps to help evaluate it, you only get so much by looking at the deck list.
2: Yep, and that that circles all the way back to your mono blue pithing needle. Like, did did you actually like uh, getting message a friend and say, "Sleeve up, rug delver, let's test this before that tournament"? Not even once. Nope.
0: I met. I sent the list to a couple of people, and they were like, "I don't think you're crazy. I think this should change." And we edited some stuff around, but um, I, I did not have actual games in.
2: Right, some theory crafting, but like if you just got slapped around by a Tarmogoyf two or three times, you might have picked, found that hole. And that's exactly what we're talking about here.
1: Going back to the out-of-the-box thinkers, these are some of my favorite people to have in my inner circle. I have a number of people that I regularly talk about deck lists with because I'm not a genius. I'm just someone that plays a lot of magic. And the way that I deck build is I think of things that I need to combat and then I find answers and or iterations of something that might work. And then I, you know, circle back on what I can do, etc. The -the out-of-the-box thinkers are the people that probably miss nine and a half shots out of 10, but they're going to have something brilliant at some point or a shot that's so good that it makes your jaw drop. And these are like the sort of ideas that I really... Value because I don't know if I ever would have taken that shot. Like, I would have thought I was too far away or something like that. And it's tough to describe, but when, like, for example, Carpet of Flowers, if you had told me six months ago I'd be playing four of them now, I would have called you crazy because I, up until six months ago, I hadn't played the card in seven years. And the last time I played it, I was running City of Brass in my deck it was a card that I played a ton in the past that I had tested a ton in the past, but seven years ago, legacy isn't the same as today. And sometimes you need people to push you to try something old again, or try something completely different. And I don't know. Like, I feel like those people are sometimes what keep the people like me that are a little negative and uh, dismissive in check.
2: Yeah. Uh, my, 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 written in my show notes here, I have my, my corollary to finding the best list requires testing is that I won't shit on a list until I see it played, either. Like, like the Boros Stoneblade, I didn't say, like, you don't have Force of Will, you're just gonna die. Like, good luck, idiot. Uh, I, I said, like, it's a deck. Put it into... Make it... Let it play. And maybe, like, the... The equipment package somehow lines up correctly, and like the Thalias uh, get it done that you don't need Force of Will, or maybe they just die to big spells multiple times and realize for themselves, and you don't know that till you play it. So, uh, I'm not going to say that something wild is terrible until I see it in action. Uh, but I, neither will I say like it's great till I see it in action. And Rich Shea was is in. When he was in our play group, he was the madman. Like he was the one, like showing up with uh, <laughs> it. He tried um, uh, the white enchantment that manifests the top card of your deck. Oh, um,
1: I know the card. I can I can see it in my head. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'll look it
2: up when I'm done talking. But something uh, destiny manifest destiny. No,
1: no that's <laughs> oh, else. that's
2: California. But no, the. That there's a there's a two mana enchantment that like you can pay four mana to manifest the top card of your deck, and Rich Shea, when this card came out, he showed up to uh, CMU draft one night with Death and Taxes featuring this card,
1: Mastery of the Unseen, Mastery yeah. of the
2: Unseen. That's it. And uh, in theory crafting, we were all like, "Wow, that is kind of an engine. That's pretty cool. Like that's card advantage in a deck that doesn't have a lot of it, etc." And then he played one match with it and realized that when you manifest your batter skull, you can't turn that face up and it just dies. When you manifest your flicker wisp, it doesn't trigger. When you manifest your stoneforge mystic, it doesn't trigger. Like every card in the deck, you actually want to enter the battlefield and trigger. And the card was horrendous once we actually saw it in context, but it looked fine in theory. And it it just took a couple games to identify how bad that was. But Rich Shea was there trying it. And you need that person in your playgroup, and the rest of you can be like, okay, rein it in. These ideas are crazy, and here's why. This one might have some merit, let's test it further. But uh, those ideas are, someone has to come up with them. And uh, you you don't want to just dunk on those people all the time, even though they're they're going to miss 9 out of 10. Because that 10 is going to win you a tournament.
0: So, as a on the other side of the equation, on another round of the LPL, I had a A great crazy play that worked. I played the Dinosaur Stompy deck, uh, the mono green Stompy deck, and that deck just steamrolled because everything was just, like, must-counter. I I forget what I was playing against. I think I was playing against Eric Lennon, and and I don't think he was playing Reanimator. I think he was playing some Blue Mush. And just, like, Chalice, Shifting Ceratops, Karn, just, like, everything that was coming down was just, like, mission-critical, I-need-to-answer-this. And I think that deck also had a bunch of, like, carpet of flowers in the sideboard or something like that. And everything was just, like, terrifying must answer. So every once in a while, those things that look crazy actually end up working out pretty well. But sometimes they're only good for one
1: weekend. my section will not be as long as Brian's. Uh, Mine's a little bit shorter. But I have a couple key things that I want to hit on. The first is a 21-year-old Brian Cook... May not have made the best decisions. And was a little bit dismissive when it came to deck building. Uh, It was 10 years ago. And in fact, the set was new for Axia. And Gitaxian Probe had just come out. I was winning a lot of Jupiter Games events at the time. I was a regular in the top 8s of these 150 person events. The Epic Storm was just a very good deck for that time period. And everything was smooth sailing for the most part. Like, my silence builds were very, very good. And... My deck didn't really feel like it had bad matchups. Well, New Phyrexia I had a Taxi and Probe come out. And Get Taxi and Probe didn't really strike me as a card I wanted to be playing. Because I was running a deck with four City of Brass in it. And my primary engine was Ad Nauseum. Why would I want to play this card that shocks me just to look at my opponent's hand when Duress does the same thing? I just wasn't very open to the idea. And I was like 5-0 at some Jupiter event and this kid came up playing ant and he was bragging about how he uh played a one cabal therapy after a Utaxian probe and snagged like double force of will or something. And I was like, Yeah, well what's your record? And the person said, I don't I, I don't remember, but it wasn't very good. They were like two and three. And I was like, Yeah, I should have been playing silence as a joke and a bunch of people laughed. In hindsight, I was a giant dick. And maybe I should have been a little bit more open to this new combo that I would in fact later on play because Gataxian Probe and Cabal Therapy was incredibly broken, but I was so set on my ways of winning with silence that it just didn't make sense. And to this day, there's a Reddit user who I will not name on air who likes to tag me once a year going, well, Brian Cook didn't think Gataxian Probe was playable. Yeah. I've never claimed that I'm perfect or that my thought, my initial thought from when I was 21 years old is still correct today. Um, like, obviously, Gitaxian Probe is very good. It ended up being banned. Uh, but I just find it weird that, like, this is a myth that I had that people like to remind me of. Um, Gitaxian Probe is, in fact, like, one of the core uh, pieces of my, one of my favorite, the epics for most of all time. Back when I was playing 4-Empty, four 4-Probe, four 4-Therapy, four my win rates were insane. I was averaging, like, 70-72%, somewhere in there. Uh, I don't hit that now because Gitaxian Probe is no longer in my dock. But it's okay to be open to change and I resent being so dismissive at that point in my life. Like I was a 21 year old kid. I was fresh out of college. I had a big ego. I was doing well on a lot of events, but the way that I think now is very differently from the way that I th- thought when I was a 21 year old. Uh, I like to really analyze ideas now. And back then I was, I don't know. I was just an asshole. So, <laughs> uh, I do
2: 21 year olds are.
1: Yeah. So, Uh, To the Reddit users that like to bring up Gitaxium Probe against me, you're not hurting my feelings. I just think that you look a little bit childish. Um, They're probably 21
0: years old. (laughs) As sort of a side note here, I also think, like, what deck you play also, like, very much influences your perception of certain cards. So... Because I was always playing this like Thalia deck that made Kataxian probe cost one more, like for most of the time the Kataxian probe was legal, I was just like, eh, yeah, that's a pretty good card, but it doesn't really bother me all that much. And now like looking back, like thinking about the tournaments, it's like, no, that card was dumb. That card was real dumb, and it just didn't impact me all that
1: much. So you're actually incredibly wrong here, Phil, and I don't mean to call you out on air. But the I remember tracking my data at the time of the banning and being incredibly disappointed because when you probed your opponent and saw a basic planes, you could brainstorm, ponder in a way that made it so you always had a turn two, and that just completely changed my win percentage against DNT. Went way down right after the banning of probe. Like I was like 50% and I had never been that low against death and taxes in my life. Like I used to average like almost 80% against death and taxes and I had to refigure out how to play that matchup entirely post ban.
0: Oh, okay. I was, I was thinking more in like the Delvary shell when I said those comments specifically, like, yeah. Yeah.
1: So
2: that just confirms your point. Like your, your point of view affects what you think of cards. Like, uh, This whole conversation, I was thinking, like, from the Delver side, like, oh, yeah, Thalia was a beating on Probe. And Brian's over there like, oh, no, Probe was great. I could just kill you. And, like, that's exactly to Phil's point.
1: Yeah. Uh, My last note on Probe was I actually got to play Probe in the first Leaving a Legacy Open that I won. uh, And Anthony Laverde played the same exact 75 that I did. We were the only two people in the room playing the Epic Storm and we were first and third, with Rich Shea being second. Uh, I think that by the time they banned Deathrite, Shaman, and Probe, the Epic Storm might have secretly been one of the best decks in the format. It's just like we figured out the list a little late. Um, and I know that sounds dumb coming from me, but it was the truth. Like, by the end, our deck was disgusting. Like, the four Probe, four Empty, four Therapy plan is just very difficult for decks to beat. Uh, but the next uh, loop in my Judgment... Is a little bit different. I want to say this was mid-2012, so after Gitaxian Probe, Thalia happened. And there was a GP in Europe. I don't remember the exact one, but Maverick had a really big showing. And I was like, and at the time, I had been testing for weeks for Grand Prix in Indianapolis. Like, I was six, eight weeks deep of playing multiple locals. I didn't play Magic Online at the time, but I was playing like two or three locals a week. And sometimes just like playtesting on the weekends with friends. And I had this idea of what the Legacy metagame was in my head a month before the event. And then Thalia was printed It crushed this event. And I said to myself and the play group, I don't think that deck's going to see play this weekend. It was last weekend's result. People aren't going to adjust that quickly. Legacy's a slow-moving format. I didn't prepare for Thalia one bit. I was running a sideboard that was dedicated towards beating blue decks. And... That's not at all what happened. Like, I just ate shit against Thalia the entire event and was just miserable. Uh, and at the time, I was like, well, how do I beat Thalia? I'm running Duress and Thoughtseize. And you don't really want to lose life against the creature deck, and Duress isn't very good. Which was flawed thinking at the time, because Thoughtseize was actually probably one of the better... No, I was running Silence. I was running Silence and Duress. And I was like, neither of these cards are very good. And I didn't like Thoughtseize because I was an a Nauseam deck, much like how my point of view on Gitaxium Probe is probably wrong. So I was like, I'll play Inquisition or Quoza in the board. So I started playing four Inquisitions in my sideboard, which honestly, like, I think at some point you need to ask yourself if playing worse cards is actually worth it, or if you need to change your point of view on how cards in your deck work. And that's something I've done a lot over the last few years. Uh, going back, and I've talked about this a bunch over the last couple of years, but like with Hope of Gripper. Changing your philosophy on how cards work within your own deck will really enlighten your deck-building skills. And if I had just bought a set of Thought seasons back then, I probably would have done a lot better than trying to play Inquisition in my deck that was also trying to beat Force of Will. So failure created a really big issue for me for like about two years until I really feel like I mastered those matchups. And at some point during that two years... I changed how I thought about decks and that really helped me moving forward, especially when it came to matchups, because I went from being someone that had to play thousands of matches against a deck to someone that could theory craft a lot more. And that's another level up that you'll eventually get to if you start changing the ways that you think about deck building.
2: Yeah, that, that's the, uh, induction versus deduction, which is how anyone learns anything. Like if, if you, uh, like an auto mechanic, like the young guy uh, or young person, excuse me, the young person learning how to fix cars. They have to get in there. They have to take that carburetor apart, put it back together. They hear a weird sound. They have to go dig for it. But then you see that like grizzled, like 60 year old auto body worker just hears that like junk, junk, plunk, And he's like, Oh yeah, that's the, that's the muffler. Like there's probably a kink in the, the pipe somewhere. And like that's induction versus deduction. So, uh, when you get the reps in, you move from an inductive model to a deductive one. And that'll save you a lot of time, but you do have to put in the work to get there.
1: Yeah. And I still play a lot of Magic today, but the way that I build my decks isn't necessarily because I play a lot of Magic. I play a lot of Magic because I like the game. Um, and then a something that I've written in articles, I don't think I've ever talked about it on the podcast, I could be wrong, is Past and Flames. For years, I was trying to put a square peg into a circle hole. Uh, the Epic Swarm was never a good Past and Flames deck. The deck running Chrome Mox and, you know, Rite of Flames was never really going to be that good with Past and Flames. Like, Past and Flames is always a much better card in Ad Nauseam Tendrils. But I was always convinced that I had to play it because I needed a way of winning that wasn't Ad Nauseam and Empty the Warrens, because those were both life total resource engines or options where Past and Flames wasn't, even though I knew that Past and Flames wasn't very good in my deck. And it wasn't until AJ Kerrigan forced me to get out of my comfort zone and quit playing a card that just simply wasn't for our deck. And at the time, I was, once again, very dismissive, but I was more open because it came from someone that I trusted, like AJ Kerrigan, and I was willing to try it. We played a number of lists or that year, and I don't think I actually had that great of uh, tournament success like I spiked like a challenge or two here or there by this time I was on Magic the Gathering online but it always felt like something was missing and once Echo Vans was printed all those things that I had been building up trying and working my brain around and putting these pieces of the puzzle together the puzzle piece was delivered to me I no longer was trying to fit a square peg into a circle hole so sometimes you're trying to fix something that doesn't exist or what you need doesn't exist yet. But it's always good to have those mental exercises ready for when something does happen. And that might not happen for your deck. Like, it's entirely possible it just never happens. But because I had so many reps with my deck, I knew everything I had been working for was all of a sudden going to work. And I I don't really know my point here, other than, like, don't try to force a square peg into a circle hole. Like, sometimes your deck just isn't meant to do something, and you shouldn't force it.
0: I spent a long time trying to win the Elves matchup with Death and Taxes, and then the more and more time went on, I just became more comfortable with saying, like, screw it, we're not winning that one, even if I warp the deck horribly and play things like Aven Mind Censors and a bunch of Containment Priests and, and whatnot. Like, we're still not winning most of the time. This is not a battle. Holy Light. <laughs> oh god, I have registered more copies of Holy Light than I care to admit.
2: I've, I've been wrathed by a holy knight or two I, in my elves days. Uh, I respect the card. Uh, I, I believe I, I was pretty early on in the Miracles Doesn't Need Counterbalance camp, especially after Top was banned. Like, that, that was a sacred cow. People still play, and it's still not that great.
1: I'll agree with you. <laughs> All right. So uh, the last thing that I have to say is a little bit more recent. Thought On the last episode, I mentioned I was going to try to beat thought, or try to beat Mindbreak Trap using Thought again. And I've known for quite some time, ever since the Echo of Aeons list, that Thought is not good. Like, I've tried it a few times now. I tried it during the Breach Era, and then I've tried it over the last three weeks due to the rise of Mindbreak Trap. The way that the Epic Storm is currently constructed is it's very poor against Mindbreak Trap. You have Veil Summer that doesn't interact, and then you have Defense Grid, where Grid is bad against the decks that bring in Mindbreak Trap. So Thoughtseize is a theoretical hole. Well, the problem is Thoughtseize doesn't work with the Epic Storm. Uh, you're running Echo of Aeons, and it doesn't protect that second hand that's drawn. It's also, when you're running a six in your deck, sometimes the life total can bite you in the butt, but not always. Uh, but in general, it's mostly the Echo of Aeons thing. And your life total does matter a little bit more when you're running Peer, because how Peer into the Abyss is how you beat the Delver decks. And you can't cast it from one life. So you can cast it from two, but you can't cast it from one. So it's just something to keep in the back of your head. But Thoughtseize is just like a trap that I love falling back into. Because after getaxian Probe was banned, I fell in love with playing four copies of Thoughtseize. And it just feels like home whenever I get to cast a turn one Thoughtseize. But the problem is, in my Echo of An stack, it's never going to be a good fix. So... Over the last week, I went back to playing defense grids. And my win percentage immediately went way back up. And, I mean, I was averaging like 52-55% playing Thought Seizes. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm losing against Rug now, and I'm losing against Mind Break Trap. And going back to f- something Phil was saying about when you sideboard, you're going to have to figure out the ins and outs. I just decided I wasn't going to board out defense grid anymore against these decks boarding and mind break. So now I simply board out four veils for two chains, two decays. And I accept that I'm leaving in defense grid against goblins in death and taxes and all these other decks that it probably doesn't deserve to be in the deck for. But at the bare minimum, it activates Mox Opal, and it can maybe stop a surgical or mindbreak, break. And that's good enough for me at this point. Uh, my sideboard map works. If you're looking at my board and you're like, well, why do you end up leaving in a veil of summer against X deck it's because I've accepted that I'm probably just going to leave in a defense grid or I don't need to have a perfect board plan for every deck because I'm just willing to leave this in now.
0: Yeah, it's a big level up moment when you accept that doing something that is suboptimal on the surface is actually the thing that is probably optimal for like a matchup or sideboarding. It's, it's, it's a weird one.
1: And I hate drawing Defense Grid against Death and Taxes or Goblins. Like, I don't enjoy it, and I definitely don't want to spend two mana on it, but I hate losing the Myberg Trap more.
0: Yeah, and if doing the thing that is, like, bad is what ends up, like, stopping so many of the, like, disaster-level failure turns, it actually ends up being pretty good.
2: Yeah, then it's not bad. Remember when... It was just correct to board out Force of Will against Death and Taxes. Like, that was just common knowledge. It is what was done. It is known. The Dothraki were all doing it. And, like, then, I, like, I can't believe in retrospect that we used to do that. Because, like, now I leave in between two and four. <laughs> like, if their spell's all resolved, they're going to win
1: you got to stop God, I Didn't the Death and Taxes become days. cast Cataclysm then? They're like, well, if you're going to board out all your forces, I'm going to cast Cataclysm. God, yeah.
0: I have resolved so many Cataclysms against Miracles. Like, back when they were doing that, I was playing, like, three Cataclysms in the board. And it was just like, I'm going to get them. At some point in the game, my four mana yep. Haymaker resolved. And I just win this game.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, and I there was one tournament where I tried death and taxes. It was an eternal weekend trial at some GP and I played against a friend on rug Delver and I boarded in all these like sweet, powerful cards that were just going to crush him. And he force of willed them all. And I was like, you left that in. And he's like, yeah, you would have won that game if I didn't. (laughs) And I, and that, that like, rather than just thinking he's bad and got lucky, I was like, Maybe this is a real thing we should be doing. And now it's insane to cut like all your forces against uh, a deck with such powerful options.
1: I had something similar happen in Vintage recently, and I'm not going to name the person because they're somewhat well known in the Vintage community. But they were playing a uh, Lutri deck, and I knew that their deck played multiple Nilrod effects. Because of this, I needed a way of being able to beat multiple Nilrod effects in my Paradoxical Outcome deck. I boarded in darksteel classes to tinker for. I tinkered for it, and the response is, "You left in? Are you boarded in darksteel against my oko deck deck?" And in my mind, I'm like, "Yeah, I need a way of beating your three to four no effects, and you only have up to one copy of each of those cards." So sometimes, like, if you think about it rationally, the conventional ways don't make sense, and I think sometimes people get too caught up in the rules of the game. Rather than thinking for themselves,
2: yeah, and and like another thing is you get to pick your spot. Like, if your opponent has Dak Faden in play, you're not just going to tinker up a blade steel colossus. <laughs> exactly. Like, obviously, there's going to be some context. Like, if they have Dak, just get Bolus's Citadel all and make them dead. Like, it, like they, uh Not to harp on that one specific instance, but like there, this conventional wisdom, which you know might be true at large, is has tons, like, infinitely manipulatable in individual context for any conventional wisdom to be filtered through. Oh, I've
0: got a great one for this. Okay, so, Miracles is the deck that plays infinite basic lands. So, Blood Moon obviously is bad against Miracles, right? So, I'm playing Red Prison on stream all the time, and I will leave in all of my Blood Moons when I'm on the play against Miracles. And everyone's like, why aren't you taking out the Blood Moons? They're bad versus miracles. And I just say, okay, watch. And I resolve a turn one Blood Moon. And my opponent is never able to get, like, blue-blue or white-white over the rest of the game. They have access to blue and white, but not access to Jace the Mind Sculptor and Council's Judgment. Like, the cards that I cared about most in the matchup. And they weren't able to, like, ponder and then fetch Shuffle And I won the game handily. And everyone's like, oh. So that's why you did that.
2: Yep. Blood Moon on the play is pretty good against Miracles. Uh, As a person who navigated the the height of Mono Red with two-color Miracles, it's just, like, exactly that. Like, we play these Fetchlands because they have utility. A two-color mana base could probably survive without Fetchlands. Just, like, build it like a standard deck, play plains and islands and you don't even need fetch lands like they're there for a reason they do something uh, i had the same conversation about goblins like uh people were like why are you bringing blood moon against goblins it's a mono red deck it's like but how many mountains do they play like it's it's a tiny number like the number of like rashad ports wastelands cavern of souls like this stuff that they, they register very few mountains and i'm doing something by bringing this card in
1: I'd also like to shout out the goblins community. Uh, I'm not in the goblins discord because I choose not to be, but I had an opponent on Moto go, rumor has it in the discord that you can't beat us. Whoever said this to me, they woke up a sleeping bear because I've gone on a fucking tear against you <laughs> people recently. So thank you. <laughs> uh,
2: All right, goblins players of the world, this is your call. Defeat Brian Cook. for when you see the
0: break track.
1: Four mindbreak Trap They're four gonna Thalia, have to. four earwig squad. I've gone like fifteen and three since then. Like it just like it woke me up. Like I'm not losing to these like goblins players anymore. They're gonna talk shit in their <laughs> Discord. I'm just gonna crush them all. Alright, now
2: you've talked shit on a podcast, so I hope Karma swings back your way. Probably will.
0: Alright, uh any final thoughts as far as missed th- missed shots go?
1: I think I'm uh, all out. I think
2: I will remember later tonight something important to talk about and that will be the missed shot that I'm going to end on.
1: The missed shots were the friends we made along the way.
2: (laughs) I I guess. (laughs) If they turn out to be bad friends.
0: (laughs) Alright folks, we hope you've enjoyed the podcast this week. Uh, Hopefully we'll see you again two weeks from now.